Pierce Boyne, the digital media editor for the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy, JNPT. This podcast episode is part of a series where Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy special interest groups talk with JNPT authors about their research, unique and unexpected findings, and how to translate these findings to clinical practice. In this episode, the Stroke Special Interest Group is interviewing the authors of the article, Assessment of Walking Speed and Distance Post-Stroke Increases After Providing a Theory-Based Toolkit. This article is in the October 2022 issue of JNPT. Welcome, everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stroke Special Interest Group podcast. I'm your host and fellow physical therapist, Jackie Lochelle. Today, we will be discussing an article called Assessment of Walking Speed and Distance Post-Stroke Increases After Providing a Theory-Based Toolkit with one of its authors, Dr. Nancy Salbach. Dr. Nancy Salbach is a professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute Chair at the University of Toronto and a senior scientist at the Kite Research Institute University Health Network in Toronto, Canada. Dr. Salbach is a physical therapist and world-renowned implementation scientist. The goal of her research is to improve balance, mobility, and everyday function of older adults through the integration of stroke rehabilitation, best practices, and community exercise programs. Dr. Salbach has obtained more than 13 million in grant funding and published more than 120 journal articles. She is an editorial board member of APTA's official scientific journal, PTJ. Dr. Salbach is a leader in guideline development. She co-chaired the writing groups to update the Canadian Stroke Best Practice recommendations and Canadian Stroke Community-Based Exercise recommendations. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Salbach. We really appreciate it and we're looking forward to learning from you. Great. Thank you for inviting me. Now let's delve into outcome measures using this population. How having a toolkit of outcome measures affect pra- affects practice and how a toolkit can make us more effective PTs. My first question is, why have toolkits been found to be useful in supporting implementation of clinical practice guidelines? I wouldn't say that toolkits in general are useful for supporting implementation of clinical practice guidelines. I would say that Toolkits that have been carefully designed to address the challenges that PTs face when they're trying to apply a recommended practice can be helpful. And a main challenge with implementing clinical practice guidelines is not knowing the protocols. So PTs could be reading clinical practice guideline and they see that there's a whole bunch of treatments they have to apply, but the guideline may not specify exactly how to deliver those treatments. What's been shown in the literature, actually, Sandy Middleton and her team ran a huge trial in Australia where they provided treatment protocols for nurses to manage fever, hyperglycemia, and swallowing dysfunction in acute stroke units. And they were able, with those protocols, able to reduce the likelihood of being debtor dependent in these acute stroke units. Um, And so providing a protocol, so like that the steps of how to is is super important. And a lot of times that's exactly what we provide in a toolkit. And another thing that toolkits provide that is very helpful is that they synthesize research evidence that the clinician doesn't have access to. So we develop systematic reviews and we summarize the evidence and we translate it in, in a way that makes it useful to clinical practice. And when the toolkit is particularly useful is 
is also when the recommended practice doesn't require special equipment or multiple complex steps. So for example, in the IWALK study, we were promoting that PTs use the 10 meter walk test or the six minute walk test. And many PTs had been exposed to a version of those tests in school. So it was reasonable to think that, you know, after watching a video on how to do the tests and practicing them, that they would be able to apply them. But in other studies, when we have, um, let's say, try to promote use of FES, let's say, uh, functional electrical stimulation or using treadmill walking training, those practices that have equipment or have multiple steps, uh, we're less likely to be, to be taken up by PTs in clinical practice. So there's really certain elements of toolkits that can be particularly helpful, and they all have to address challenges that PTs are, are having in their daily practice. I'm glad that the research base is looking into more specific ways of uh, expressing the guidelines, because that's certainly something that comes up when I'm reading research. There's a recommendation, but it's very vague or something that I, I know what it is, but I can't necessarily implement or don't know how. What are challenges PTs often face in implementing CPGs within their practice setting? Specific to 10-meter walk test and six-minute walk tests, why do you think these are underutilized? Okay, so the first part of your question relates to what challenges PTs face implementing guideline recommendations. And we, we talked a little bit about that protocol issue, but even a step before that is, are PTs actually aware of maybe a new practice that is recommended in guidelines? So awareness of a new practice is the first step. What that means is that either the PT or someone in a practice setting in a hospital, for example, has to be reviewing the guidelines for what's new. And sometimes there is a professional practice leader. That's the term we use in Canada, but like basically someone who has responsibility for advancing best practice in a particular hospital or setting. There needs to be this regular process where they're reviewing guidelines for, for new recommended practices. And then once you know what the recommended practices are, then, you know, the usual suspects of needing the knowledge, the skill and self-efficacy to actually perform the recommended practices is key. And let's not forget about attitudes because you can be sure that if a PT does not believe in a practice, they're not likely to apply that practice. And not only that, but patients, like I am a physical therapist and our patients and what we do with our patients and how like the quality of our practice with our patients is so important to us. And so if PTs feel, first of all, that the recommendations don't apply to the majority of their patients, then that's a challenge. And also if they feel the recommended practice could actually cause some harm to their patients or themselves, then they're going to feel hesitant to apply that new, new practice. And sometimes it, it can be surprising. So related to aerobic training, for example, and reactive balance training, those are just some examples where these worries or anxieties may, may come into play. And then another issue that maybe some people don't think about is priority. So in the stroke rehabilitation world, we're lucky because we have an abundance of research evidence. So when we developed our very first clinical practice guideline for stroke rehab in Canada, there were more than 18 treatments recommended that PTs and OTs or occupational therapists were supposed to implement. And when we piloted the guideline, the first thing that stroke teams told us was that there's a lot of things to do here. So prioritizing which treatment to do and with whom 
was an issue. So that's another challenge that PTs face with uh, implementing guidelines. And then, of course, we have equipment in space, and and sometimes it's it's with items that are surprising. So again, with a previous study I was involved with where OTs had to position patients' uh, upper extremities using pillows just to support the shoulder joint to prevent shoulder pain, it was surprising that stroke teams actually reported difficulty finding extra pillows. So even something as simple as a pillow uh, was what was a barrier for them in being able to do like this positioning recommended practice in the guideline. That's an issue as well, equipment and space. The second question was around what are some challenges related to the 10-meter walk test and the six-minute walk test. And specific to the 10-meter walk test, now we know that this is a test that has a 10-meter timed distance, and then there's two meters before and after. So the total walkway in, in the iWalk guide was 14 meters. And most of our stroke rehabilitation settings uh, that were involved in our study had that kind of a distance, but they did not always have the distance for the 30 meters we recommended for the six minute walk test. So that's an example where space was an issue. And and then as well for equipment, we were also very surprised that in some settings, they said they didn't have a dedicated blood pressure cuff to use to screen blood pressure prior to doing the six minute walk test and that there was no budget to purchase one. So uh, in one site, the, the practice leader went out and used their own money to purchase equipment, which is unusual. So that can be another challenge, even with this type of practice, which uh, doesn't require a lot of resources. And another thing that was quite interesting was for the 10-meter walk test, I was surprised a quarter of our study participants, and we only had 50 PTs, in our study, but that a quarter of them had learned that test in their university PT program. So they weren't even familiar with the test. So, you know, going back to familiarity, that was again, that they weren't even aware of the test. So of course, if they're not aware of it, then they, they don't implement it. And for the six minute walk test, it was really this space issue. And also the fact that there are a variety of protocols for the six-minute walk test. And so clinicians then don't know which of the protocols they should be using. And then finally, for both of these tests, in some settings, the other challenge is that the test, they have to believe that these tests are, are going to apply to the majority of their patients. And initially, they didn't think that the 10-meter walk test and the six-minute walk test could be applied in patients who needed assistance to walk. So that was another challenge. So what factors did you consider then when de designing toolkit for these two outcome measures, a six-minute six minute walk test and a 10-meter walk test? We did qualitative studies and surveys where we did ask PTs about challenges with administering both of the tests. And, and so we knew that some of the challenges related to not even being familiar with the test and also not knowing how to interpret the test and, and really surprisingly going years back that some people, again, didn't think that these two tests applied to their clinical practice. So one of the things that we, we did, we basically followed a theoretical framework that's been widely used in the U.S. Uh, so the knowledge to action framework was developed in Canada, but it, it's, a, it's a theoretical framework that does help you with the process of how you should approach these issues. So you know, if you already know what the best practice is, and in this case, it was using these two tests, then, you know, it guides you to think about, okay, well, what are the challenges? And we talked about some of them with the previous question that you asked, Jackie. So, so what we had to do then was we had to organize, okay, what are all these challenges and how could we design the toolkit to address each one? 
And, and you'll see in some of our publications from this study, we, we do kind of lay out what the challenges were and then how the IWOC toolkit addressed them. So the IWOC toolkit has these three components. It has a guide, which is like a written manual. It has a smartphone app and also a video. Some of the things that we put into the guide and the app was the protocol. So we knew that to address the fact that there are multiple protocols for the six minute walk test and even the 10 meter walk test, we developed stroke specific protocols that permitted the evaluator to provide manual assistance to steady the patient, but not to advance the leg. And just having like one protocol for each test was super important because then we could say, okay, these are the protocols we're going to promote. And then once we got the protocols down, then we developed a video showing a physio administering the test so that PTs would have a, a visual of exactly how to do the protocols. And, and then the other challenge with administering outcome measures in clinical practice is that PTs really want to know that the scores are meaningful. Like, what do I do with the score? How do I interpret it? How do I share my interpretation with the patient and the family and with even my colleagues? So we had um, reviewed the literature and we selected what we called like reference values. So they were normative values, community ambulation values, minimum detectable change values that PTs could compare their patient's performance to. And some of these values required equations to produce the value. So that was one really great advantage of developing the smartphone app because the app had these integrated algorithms that meant that the PT doesn't, you know, the physio doesn't have to actually do take out their calculator, right? So if they don't have to take out their calculator, if they can just put in the patient's uh, age and sex into the app and, and get the six minute walk test norm for their patient, then that is really, it's a quick way for them to have access to this information that otherwise would have been stuck in some research article. So making it faster for the PT to get at that information that could help them interpret the scores was, was really important. And we developed the guide, the IWOC guide, which outlined an overall clinical approach to using both of these tests. Um, in other words, like how do you administer it? How do you compare the scores to reference values? How do you educate your patients? How do you set goals? So once there was this whole packaging, this clinical approach that we showcased in the guide. And we also made sure to, you know, to list out where the research or how the research literature supported this approach. And the PTs really liked that who read the guide and gave us feedback that they want to be delivering evidence-based practice. So they want to know what is the research literature that's supporting this recommended clinical approach. What were the implementation strategies you used to increase the use of the toolkit? It's helpful to understand that like a, a toolkit is is really educational in nature. It, it's, you know, you, you review the information in the guide, you watch the video, you might look through the app, but it doesn't really get you moving, right? It doesn't get you doing the behavior or the new practice that you would like to do. So we really did have to think about, okay, so we've developed these, these education resources. Now, what are we going to ask PTs to do at their hospital or in their clinic to actually change their behavior, like to actually develop their skills, to develop their self-efficacy, to change their behavior with patients? So we developed 
a, a set of, of three learning sessions, which we outline in the guide. And this was part of our implementation strategy. So the guide includes agendas for what to do at each of the three learning sessions. And the agenda for each of the sessions basically requires that the, the, like the physios have reviewed the guide at one of at the very first learning session they're supposed to watch the video together and at, at other sessions they are supposed to use the app and to actually get up and practice the walk test with each other and practice interpreting performance using the app you know so doing it during these learning sessions so that then they can start to build skill in using the app and understand how to interpret patients performance and walk through educating each other uh, and how to set goals and so on. And so we thought that by providing these agendas that it would kind of make things so much easier for the PTs in each of the hospitals that were part of our study to go ahead and, and actually do the learning sessions. And I have to say that what was super important was that, and, and this is important to understand, like when we did the IWOC study where we actually introduced the toolkit in nine different hospitals, we had actually developed relationships with those hospitals prior to that. And we asked them, you know, we, we chose hospitals that had what we call like a professional practice leader or a practice leader. So a professional practice leader in, in Canada is somebody who is responsible for advancing best practices, but also sees patients. And a professional leader doesn't see patients. That's the only difference. And so we had engaged them and, and, you know, they did agree with our goals and they agreed to be part of the study. So they did take on that responsibility to lead the learning sessions. And so that's super important. Most of the sites did do all three learning sessions. When we did our qualitative follow-up, they did talk about how practicing the test was helpful because, for example, at one of the hospitals, they were using different distances for the six-minute walk test. And if, you know, one physio is using a 15-meter walkway and another one is using a 30-meter walkway, then the results are not comparable. As you know, with shorter walkways, the patient turns more often, and that usually means they're going to end up with a shorter distance than if they used a longer, a longer walkway. Even for sites that were actually already familiar with the test, it was important that they learned that aspect that you need one protocol and that everybody needs to be doing the same one. The, the implementation strategy of having these three learning sessions was super important to achieving that. Are these two positions in all hospitals or rehab settings, not even just hospitals, I guess outpatient clinics in Canada? Not in every hospital, no, but they are positions that are in some hospitals in some provinces. And sometimes there might be someone in this kind of position who oversees more than just physical therapists. So it might be that they oversee the clinical practice of occupational therapists and maybe speech language pathologists. So do you know what I mean? It could be somebody yeah. who has a broader portfolio, but in the, the nine hospitals that we engaged which were in two provinces, they were in Ontario, as well as in Nova Scotia, they did have these positions in some of the hospitals, like the acute care hospitals would also have an outpatient setting in the same hospital. And then some rehab hospitals also had an outpatient clinic, the professional practice leader would oversee practice in both areas. What was the result of the use of the toolkit in terms of increase in implementing the tests? Were you expecting this? What we found is that and this was based on doing a chart review, Jackie. So we went back to the hospitals after the study was over and 
we reviewed the charts of every person or every patient who'd had a stroke eight months before we gave the toolkit and eight months after. So it was actually a very large undertaking to do this at nine hospitals. And it was an uncontrolled study. So again, just to understand that, meaning that we just looked at basically what happened before and after at each of these hospitals. And so what we did was we looked in the, the health record and we looked to see whether the, the physical therapists here at these nine hospitals, whether they had documented that they had done the tests before, and also whether they documented any reference values, for example, that they'd used, and, and whether they had documented goals for their patients related to gait speed or walking distance. And then we did the same thing for eight months of, of data, let's say, after the intervention phase in our study. So when we compared the documentation after versus before, what we found is that the odds of implementing the 10-meter walk test were 9.7 times greater after compared to before, and the odds of implementing the 6-minute walk test were 3.5 times greater after compared to before. And you might think, oh, well, that's maybe because maybe afterwards patients who had a higher functional walking ability level, for example, um, or maybe there were more patients before who had aphasia or cognitive impairment, and that was the, res the reason for these positive results. But what we did was we actually documented that as well. So we documented the hospital setting, the ambulation ability, the presence of aphasia, the presence of cognitive impairment, and we adjusted for those factors in our analysis. And we also adjusted for the fact that multiple patients would have come from the same physio. Let's say there was like a real superstar physio who, who like just completely uh, embraced the study and then started to change practice with every single patient. We actually adjusted for that, that, that fact. So we adjusted for what's called provider level clustering. And so we did find those were the main results. But the, the thing that was surprising is that that main result was just whether or not physios did the test once. So that was the main outcome. Did they do the test at least once to a greater extent after the toolkit was given versus before? But we also had secondary outcomes. And those secondary outcomes were, did the physios administer the test twice for a patient during the length of stay? Did they administer the test and also document in the chart comparison to reference values because we had provided the data on norms and walking speed needed to cross the street, for example, and distances to walk in the community. So we wanted to know whether that also improved and it did as well. So administering the test twice and administering the test and comparing patient performance to reference values also improved. And I would say that that was just amazing. That was surprising to me because uh, I, I had underestimated the, the value that physios really placed on that interpretation element. Can you find this toolkit online? Yes, you can. We had always wanted it to be freely available for iOS as well as for Android on Google Play. So you can find it on the App Store and also in Google Play, freely available. The name of the app is iWalk Assess. Even though the toolkit was called the iWalk Toolkit, when we went to make the app available, that name was already taken. So we had to come up with a new name. So we called it iWalk Assess, given its focus on assessment. And it is free. And to find the whole toolkit, we developed a website and the URL is www.iwalkassess.com. You can find links to the toolkit and download the toolkit by going to that website. 
the toolkit consisted of three different elements, educational guide, educational video, and mobile app. Do you think any of these was more or less important, or was it really how they all work together that made it successful? This is a really good question because it it kind of relates to, is there a one-size-fits-all, for example? And so what I would say is that uh, the three components worked really well all together. And let me tell you that there was a lot of duplicated information or content between the guide and the app, because basically we, we, we first developed the guide and then we took some of that content and we put it into the app. And wouldn't you know that some physios still prefer reviewing a printed document, right? So um, I think I would. I like yeah, so we provided the guide as a printed document to all of our sites, but we, we also provided it digitally. But when we did our qualitative follow-up, some physios talked about how they preferred a paper copy. Other physios talked about how they, pre they preferred just reviewing the app and that they learned from using the app to administer the tests. And then after they'd use the app, because the, the app tells you the protocol and it gives you the instructions mm -hmm. on how to administer each test. So it's educational in that way. And it also has audio recordings of the instructions so that you can play the audio recordings. And this was like our attempt to make things standardized in case physios didn't want to say the uh, all of the instructions out loud. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, some physios would prefer to just say the instructions themselves. So they're written down as well. But some physios talked about how they used the app in the beginning to get familiar with the tests, and then they didn't need the app for that purpose later on. But what they continually use the app for, and this is where this, this aspect is not in the guide, is that even though the guide did have a section about um, normative values that you could use to compare to patient performance and it, it reviewed community ambulation values such as walking speed and Perry's walking handicap classification and also um, the minimum detectable change values. So even though it reviewed the same information, what the app did for you was it had algorithms to make it faster for you to compare your patient's performance to all of those values. Because what the app would do is, as long as you entered your patient's age and sex or the gate speed value that you obtained for the 10 meter walk test, then the app would immediately compare to the norm for you and would give you the percentage, for example, of the normative value. So you would very quickly have the information that you would need, first of all, for you to know what is the magnitude of the deficit. And then also for you to be able to incorporate that information, like to educate your patient. So for example, what was super amazing and surprising to me was that physios started to talk about how they used the gate speed value compared to the norm to talk to their patients about whether they were ready to be discharged. And, and I was like, oh, wonderful. So, so basically they, they had some patients who, for example, thought that they were able to do more than they could. So they would use their results on the 10 meter walk test and the six minute walk test to talk to them about where they were at and whether they actually could walk fast enough to cross the street and the time of a walk signal in order to make the patient aware of, of their ability levels. On the other hand, it could also be used to boost their confidence. So they use this information in clinical practice and they could quickly get at the, those comparisons, Jackie, that they couldn't from the guide. That was very important. And I would say just to kind of fully answer your question, the video 
which was the third component. Even though a large majority did watch the video, because it's a smaller component, they, they didn't emphasize, oh, it was the video that changed my practice. It was more that they, they found it was helpful. But I think that there was such a, an imbalance, much more information was provided in the guide and in the app that the video was of, of lesser relative importance. But I would still say it was very important because it actually showed a physio doing the test with a patient with stroke. So it's like real life, right? So it put it into context and it wasn't that difficult to make the video. So I would say that it, you know, it's kind of that idea of a picture is worth a thousand words. It just kind of puts it in front of the, the physios who are learning and, and saying, this is the final product. This is what we want you to be doing. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think also when it comes to time management in a clinic, if it's right there and you can watch it real quick and then do it, that's so much easier than looking things up. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Can you discuss the difference in results between settings, acute inpatient and outpatient? What we found is that we had greater practice change in inpatient rehabilitation settings and outpatient settings compared to acute care for a number of reasons. When we did our qualitative interviews and focus groups with the physios that were in our study and also with the professional practice leaders and practice leaders, what they explained to us is that in acute care, the length of stay is fairly brief compared to in inpatient rehab and outpatient rehab. So they don't have a lot of time. And the, the main goal is to organize discharge, let's say, to inpatient rehabilitation. And they also have a requirement to complete the functional independence measure or the FIM in order to uh, refer people to the inpatient rehabilitation hospitals. Th that's their priority. And they also explained to us that the majority of their patients are not even able to walk with minimal assistance of one person. They need more assistance than that. And our protocols had said, you know, the evaluator can do the 10 meter walk test and the six minute walk test with hands on the patient, but just for studying them, not for advancing the, the leg, for example. Whereas the majority of their patients had difficulty just even walking that they, they needed more help. So therefore, they said that the, the test didn't apply to most of their patients. So that was a big learning, right? So if you're introducing a new practice and the new practice can't be actually done by the majority of patients, well, guess what? the new practice probably isn't going to get implemented. But there was also a lack of understanding in acute care, in acute care settings, where some of the physios did not remember and did not learn from the guide and the app that actually people can take rests when they do the six-minute walk test. Even if somebody doesn't have, let's say, a high exercise tolerance, you can still do the six-minute walk test. And it was part of our protocol that they can definitely take rests. But when we did the qualitative follow-up, we discovered that some physios actually had not realized that. When they did realize it, then they said, oh, okay. They, they acknowledged that they, in the future, would maybe do these tests with their more high-functioning patients, but that they might still prefer to do the 10 meter walk test over the six minute walk test. One, because it was easier. Two, because it required a shorter walkway and they had difficulty finding a 30 meter walkway. And because the test is faster to complete, there wouldn't be as many people walking across the walkway. So you can imagine, you know, the busy acute care setting. One of the main challenges is that if you were doing the six minute walk test, 
that there were patients in the hallway, there were other healthcare professionals, there was equipment, there were beds, and it was difficult to have a quiet space to do the test because people kept walking across the walkway. So that's what made the six minute more difficult than the 10 meter walk test to do in the acute care setting. What are the key points that you want to convey about your study? Why are PTs more reluctant to use a six minute walk test and why it should be used more often? Interestingly, so in, in, in the acute care setting, definitely the PTs were more reluctant to use the six minute walk test as, as we just discussed, but that overall the physios embraced the 10 meter walk test for similar reasons because it was easier to do. It required a shorter walkway and it took less time to complete. So the key points that I wanted to convey, I guess, about the IWALK study is that we as researchers have to do a better job at supporting PTs to make practice change. Because for, for many years, it, it was the fact that you would have a clinical practice guideline come out and it would just say, okay, you should be doing task-oriented training. You should be doing aerobic training. You should be doing constraint-induced movement therapy, whatever it was, but with no supports, with no resources to enable physios in different practice settings to actually apply those those treatment recommendations. So what we have to do is do a better job at developing the resources like toolkits to um, help enable practice change. But it's not just the resources. You also need people. You You need clinical practice positions where people have of the responsibility to advanced best practice. And we, we were lucky that at the nine hospitals we collaborated with, people were in these professional practice roles. They were essential in our study to promoting change because in some sites that didn't have either an on-site practice leader or we did have the situation where the practice leader went on leave, those sites were less well-supported as a result and they struggled more to do the learning sessions and to make the practice change. So we also need to have physios in these professional practice positions to help advance best practices. And I'm a scientist at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute, which is a very large rehabilitation hospital. And there is also the Kite Research Institute within the hospital. And we have developed a, a new toolkit that was released last year, which is to support reactive balance training, and we're building a toolkit to support aerobic training post-stroke. So these toolkits have been developed, you know, led by researchers, but but in collaboration with clinicians and others. And, and so this is like a beginning, right? It's, it's a beginning attempt to support our clinicians to advance practice. And the ANPD has done a fabulous job with all of the resources that are on their website to basically synthesize the research literature, make it freely available, make it available so that clinicians really worldwide can take advantage of the resources. But some settings are still going to struggle if they don't have the leadership or the protected time to actually embrace the recommended practices. If clinicians are interested in developing toolkits for other outcome measures, what would your suggestions be as how to go about this? If you are a clinician in clinical practice, then the first step would be to partner with a a researcher. That would be really important because if you don't have protected time and if you want to take an approach that is 
theoretically sound, then you might want to partner with a researcher who is involved with practice change and with clinical practice guideline implementation, for example, and then collaborate really, because you know what? A lot of the times clinicians' ideas are the best ideas for a research study. And so I would say that that would be a good first step. So see if there's a a research institute or a university researcher that might be willing to partner with you to develop such a toolkit. In addition to finding the right collaborator is that you also want to use theory to guide your work. So we talked earlier about the knowledge to action cycle, and there are other behavior change theories that are out there that probably implementation scientists they're familiar with that can be incorporated into toolkits because we certainly did that with the IWALK toolkit. So I'm a a big fan of of, uh, self-efficacy theory and so incorporated some of the strategies for building confidence and self-efficacy into the implementation strategy. And we also use the KTA cycle as like an overarching framework for guiding our research. And the third piece of advice is really to learn from the efforts of others where you go ahead and review the toolkits that are already available, examine the IWOP toolkit, examine the ANPT website for the amazing tools that are already on the website, and look at the research literature for other toolkits and look and see how they were designed, why they were designed, what challenges they were designed to address and make parallels to your particular scenario so that you're not reinventing the wheel so that in fact, you're learning from the work of others and see if you can move forward from there. This study was done in Canada based on differences between Canadian and U.S. healthcare systems, including the amount and duration of therapy available post-stroke. How do you think this study would translate across the border? I think the, the study results do translate very well. And the reason I say that is, is because, as I've mentioned before, in the U.S., there have been already physical therapy researchers who have accomplished similar studies in the U.S., such as Catherine Lang, Wendy Romney, Jennifer Moore, and they've published their results. And they have used some of the similar strategies and additional strategies that we didn't use in our study because our study was really just focused on the toolkit and how did the toolkit help people? Other research led by these folks have used additional strategies to help to achieve practice change and have demonstrated that they can achieve practice change. So I think that this type of research does translate very well to the U.S. healthcare systems. And then one thing that stuck out to me about this toolkit is the comparison data that's so easily available on it. I think that's really helpful for at least what I know about the insurance hurdles that people need to overcome. So it's really helpful to have that normative data to show how much physical therapy is benefiting. So I can imagine in America, that'd be very helpful. And Jackie, I'm glad you mentioned that because you made me remember that when we developed the smartphone app, the smartphone app has a normative equation as the default normative equation for Canada. Because we wanted the app to be useful in other countries, we did actually include a normative equation for the six-minute walk test that was developed in the United States and as well one that was developed in Australia. So we, we thought that that might help physical therapists in the States who are using either the six minute walk test or the 10 meter walk test on a 14 meter walkway, that they would be able to to use those data. And actually for the 10 meter walk test, we use normative values that were developed through a meta-analysis led by a U.S. researcher, Richard Bohannon. So we do feel that there's the kind of the the normative values in there are, are helpful to people living in the U.S. And I would say that maybe in terms of cross walk speed, 
We did base our crosswalk speeds on Canadian values. And so that might be one thing to look into to see whether crosswalk speeds that are recommended, depending on where you live, you would want to know whether that is a similar value to what we have as our standard in Canada. Thanks again, Dr. Salbach, for speaking to us. And thanks everyone for tuning into this podcast. Please continue to look out for more of the Stroke Special Interest Group podcast on ANPT Synapse, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.